This podcast is offered by Black Mountain Zen on the web at blackmountainzen.org. Our public offerings are made possible by the kind donations from people like you. Good morning. Before we started sitting this morning, I was standing out there thinking, what will I wear, you know? And I thought, well, I'll put on my robes. And then I thought, you know, there's two other, there was two options. I could wear the big robe, which is called the Okesa, or I could wear this, which is called Ragasu. And then I went through what you might call a liturgical process, you know. Since we're not having a, a chanting service, if we were having a chanting service, I should put on my okesa because that would be appropriate. But since we're not, I'll put on this. Um, And so I took it out of the envelope and I put it on my head and I said the gatha we say, the little prayer we say before you put it on. And um, you know, when, when Chakimuni set up almost coincidentally his style of practice, I say almost coincidentally because when he first started to teach, he really didn't, apparently didn't have much idea as to exactly how this should all be. So he just let it happen. And then they decided, well, let's, um, we're mendicants. Let's just be as simple as possible. And so they collected the cloths from bodies. And then in that part of India, there was a tree called the jackfruit. And you, you could create a dye out of the bark. And so they got this simple white cloth that had been used to wrap the bodies before they were burned. And then they dyed it. And that's what they made their robes out of. And that's why in Southeast Asia, the robes are still the same color, saffron. And then wearing that robe became the um, appropriate, maybe even mandated way to be a Buddhist monk. And that tradition was carried forth and then Buddhism came to China and it became quite popular and then it got uh, official endorsement from different governments and, uh, and then that government was overthrown by another government by force and 
the new government decided that they should wipe out all the Buddhist monks because they were supporters of the previous government. And anybody wearing the okesa, the robe, the Shakyamuni, what his group had adopted, they would kill them. So, but since wearing the robe was by that point an essential part of being a monk, they had a dilemma. If I wear the robe, I'll be killed. If I don't wear it, I'm not a monk and I want to be a monk. And so um, they come up with this idea, we'll make miniature robes and we'll wear them under our clothes. So we'll be wearing our robes, but nobody will see them, so they won't kill us. And here it is. And then, um, and then, as things go, that period of oppression passed and it became okay to wear a robe. And they went back to that. But the, the notion of a miniature robe had caught on. You know? it's like, and then it took on its own um, sort of symbolism, independent of that its genesis, you know, and um, that the new symbolism had very aspect, various aspects to it, you know, as a lay person you could have one, as an ordained priest you could have one. Um, And I say all that, um, it's funny when you look at the history, you know. I was talking to some, when you look at the history of how something evolves, and you see how it was, the, the different factors, you know. You know, in a way you could say, well, if Buddhist monks in China hadn't been going through a period of brutal oppression, I wouldn't be wearing this. No. Um, I have a dear friend and mentor who uh, he's actually a Benedictine monk, but he, he did a PhD in Buddhist studies at Harvard. And he knows a great deal about the history of Catholicism. And, um, and it's interesting because he's a very devoted Buddhist monk, or not Buddhist monk, <laughs> Christian monk, but he has enormous skepticism about uh, different aspects of Christianity. Like one of the things he told me was that 
the adoration of the Blessed Virgin had started independently from Catholicism. And somewhere in between the third and fourth century, and it was very popular, it was co-opted into Catholicism. And I don't know quite how it happened, but I was talking to someone on Friday, and, um, and I mentioned this to her, and I could see sort of a slightly startled look on her face. You know, I think there's a way in which we're inclined to think, well, how things are now, especially in terms of spirituality, has been ordained by some higher power, you know? Like, this comes from some, uh, well, maybe in Buddhism we wouldn't say a higher power, maybe we would say, um, the accumulated wisdom and insight of um, the Buddhist tradition. In Christianity, we might say, well, Mary was the mother of Jesus and so adoration of the Blessed Virgin has always been there. Well, historically, apparently not. Um, and yet, I put it on my head, as we do, and put my hands in gasho, and sincerely say the little gatha, the little prayer. Um, and to me, it captures a, a certain aspect of Zen practice. This is what I would call a healthy skepticism and a dedication. Well, who knows how we've come to be practicing the way we're practicing? My notion of healthy skepticism is don't get too self-righteous, too self-important, too certain, well, this is the pure and blessed way to do things. I mean, maybe it is. Um, but much more likely, all sorts of things have happened, and here we are. perched in this room over the curated kitchen restaurant downstairs. <laughs>
on a Sunday morning meditating. Hmm. To my mind, the uniqueness of it is a reflection of what we might call its sacredness. And whatever form it takes our life, it has that same um, uniqueness and that same sacredness. Nothing sacred, everything sacred. And that's how, to me, that's the fundamental disposition of Zen practice. We do things a particular way, not because this is the best way in contrast to every other way, but somehow or another, this is how it has turned out. You know, the San Francisco Zen Center has a monastery, Tassajara. Actually, it's called Zen Mountain Monastery. And in, in one of his talks, Azuki Roshi said, you know, if we lost this place, we'd go somewhere else and we'd make up a way to practice there. Wouldn't be the same. It would be adapted to that place. You know? So, and somehow, to recognize that life happens, circumstances happen, oppressions happen, endorsements happen, and they produce something, and we practice with it. We, and then within it, we find um, we find the profundity of what practice offers. Like how we relate to it, how we engage it, is an essential ingredient. Not to say um, we could spend a half hour jumping up and down, and that would have the same effect on our consciousness as sitting still and becoming aware of what's happening in our body and in our breath, or in our state of mind. Um, There is a challenge, and even though the circumstances of the moment that brought the moment into being had myriad causes, how we relate to this moment um, 
help shape it now. And then we take up the tradition, and then hopefully that tradition has um, accumulated in the midst of those coincidental circumstances, it has accumulated what we might call spiritual wisdom. That the people who've practiced it have contributed to it an insight that, that allows it to have, um, that it imbues it with a, um, a capacity to teach us. You know? As I put this on my head and I say the gatha, or as I did this morning, um, I felt something. I felt reminded of something. And I noticed for me, it is more about a feeling than a particular um, belief in some idea or concept. It's more of a sensibility than um, a strongly held uh, concrete opinion. And it reminded me of something else that I read, Suzuki Roshi said, which was, said, it's important to believe in nothing. It's important to believe in nothing. Very important. When my daughter was about eight years old, she said to me, uh, it's like this. There's a pie, and the slices of the pie, each slice of the pie is a different religion. And, um, and I said, well, what if you believe in nothing? And she said, that's another slice of the pie. I thought it was kind of brilliant for an eight-year-old. I reminded her of it a couple of years ago. She's now 38, and she couldn't remember it. (laughs) Um, Not to believe in nothing as saying, you know, keep your mind blank, but more to watch yourself. Okay, how do I construct my, what I think practice is? You know, what kind of articulation do I give it? You know? And do I add anything extra? Do I say to myself, 
as some kind of reassurance. This is the real way. This is better than uh, the way other people do it. Do I add some notion? Well, if I put this on my head and I don't say the gata, I've done something wrong. And in a way, it's quite a challenge, you know? It's easier to be dedicated when you have a firm conviction, you know? I know for sure this is what to do. This is what should happen. Okay, go do it. So what if you're saying, this is just how things have turned out, you know? some warlord in middle China in retribution of the attacks and another warlord that he eventually overcame oppressed Buddhist monks and now we have Rakasus And soon after that became what was called the golden age of Zen. Zen flourished. But over the years, teaching with Brother David Standelrust and interestingly, even though I grew up Christian, I discovered I didn't actually know very much about Christianity. And he, as I listened to him teach, he deconstructed it, you know? The parts where I would think, oh, it's this. He would say, well, that was introduced in the ninth century at a certain, um, can't remember the word, what they call it in Catholicism when they all come together and make a decision. But but what I found was that the deconstruction in its own way is a kind of liberation. No. It's like, oh, there's no need to hold that as some kind of fixed idea, you know? There's no need to think, well, if I can't have conviction about that, then something's wrong. And this is the spirit of Zen practice, you know. It's coincidental that we have a wine-colored 
velvety bowing mat. It wasn't mandated by Shakyamuni Buddha. It's coincidental. Yeah. But who knows? Maybe someday someone will tell us with authority, oh, it has to be wine-colored. Green's not okay. Or it has to be velvet. It can't just be linen. Because that's what the human mind tends to do. It tends to take the particular and turn it into an absolute. Take the coincidental and make it a standard, you know? And yet it's a bit of a dilemma, you know? Well, how can I be dedicated and diligent if I don't have that kind of uh, conviction? But with this kind of not holding on to conviction, um, we're always in the process of discovery, you know. It's, it's like our whole engagement becomes more of a work in progress. Yeah. And at each point, we have this challenge. Okay, well now what will we do? Yeah. And we can say one way, well, the challenge is to trust the process of practice and to not cling to any particular consequence. And if you think about it, that's what we learn when we're meditating. You know? You said, okay, I will sit down and the process is stay present and experience what happens. And then all sorts of coincidental things happen. You think about things you never intended to think about, you know. And you respond to your own thinking and feeling in ways you never intended. It's a coincidental occurrence. You know, we are living examples of a basic Buddhist teaching. All things arise out of causes and conditions, some of which we know and many of which we don't know. We just are them, you know. We never planned to have a restaurant downstairs. It just happened, you know. We never said, wouldn't it be great to have a zendo that was over a restaurant? 
so that when we sat on Sunday mornings, we could hear the murmuring sounds. <laughs> Wouldn't that be real Zen practice? And each time we sit, there we are, a vibrant, living example of this coincidental existence. Yeah. And when we start to engage like this, um, there's like an existential dilemma for us. Um, But what about me, you know? I want that to be permanent. I want it to be, have certain attributes to it that support life. I wanted to have happiness and not suffering. And when we start to attend closely to that ever-changing existence, we start to see how it's related to is a very significant ingredient into letting life flourish. Yeah. Mm. Because When you try to rely on conviction, um, the coincidental nature of it will keep confounding that part of you that says, this is it. No sooner have you constructed the this, than it starts to become something else. And we watch ourselves in the middle of this coincidental impermanence try to restore through our narrative. Not even intentionally, we call up some aspect, some memory of who we are, and we replay it. We recount it to what? To the universe, so the universe can hear it. So maybe sometimes we think we're saying it, we imagine we're saying it to a certain person. And almost the paradox of practice is that the very stability, the very reassurance, the very um, authentic being that we're yearning for isn't created by our grasping or conviction. It's actually created by 
our acceptance of just the way it is. It's not permanent. It's ever-changing. And it's not under our control. We're just actually part of it. And that doesn't mean we have to throw in the bin our wine-colored velvet bombing mat. No. It's what we've got. And we can appreciate it just for what it is. No. We can put Arakasus on our head and sincerely say the gata um, in a way we can marvel at how things have turned out without needing to insist this is what should be. Or also annoy ourselves by insisting they should be different. And then time takes on um, a coincidental kind of dimension. No. And um, what an extraordinary coincidence that it's us, the group of us here this morning. No? If any one of us wouldn't, wasn't here and somebody else was, it would be a different coincidental occurrence or consequence. Yeah. And so in a way, coincidence of it helps our awareness when we have a certain attitude. What's happening now? What coincidence is occurring? What thoughts are coming to mind? What memories? What attitudes or responses do I have to the signs of the people downstairs? What do I think practice is or isn't. Mm. 
What associations do I create to the moment? So for whatever reasons, I'm inclined to read this poem by uh, Seamus Heaney, which happens to be the last poem he wrote. Two weeks later, he died suddenly, which in the workings of my mind makes it um, somewhat poignant, especially very close to the opening line. It's called In Time. And he wrote this for the granddaughter, who was about 18 months old, maybe a couple of years. He wrote the poem for her, and well, he dedicated it to her. Energy, balance, outbreak. Listening to Bach, I saw you years from now, more years than I'll be allowed. Your toddler wobbles gone, a sure and grown woman. Your barefoot on the floor keeps me in step. The power I first felt come up through our cement floor long ago, palps your soul and heal and earths you here for real. An oratorio would be just the thing for you. Energy, balance, outbreak. At play for their own sake. But for now, we food it lightly, in time, and silently. August 18th, 2013. more years than I'll be allowed. And two weeks later, he was dead. I think there's something in us that says something like, I don't think I can be content are truly happy without some assurance, you know, about this life. You know, I think the coincidental nature of it is not so easy for us. I think it's an existential challenge for us to accept it. No. But it sure as heck seems like that's how it is. It is coincidental. It is changing. No. It's a powerful request practice makes of us, you know? To accept that. But I would also say, you know, in my way of thinking about it is, um, it gives us a great gift.
know. Like I hear in that poem, marveling and deeply appreciating, you know. You know, he could just have thought, oh, toddlers just dancing around on her shaky legs on the floor. So what? Where's my dinner? You know. But he didn't. He marveled in it and let it create its own time. You know, its, its own kind of precious being. Yeah. He let it create the sacredness of the cement floor. He let it exemplify the coincidental balance of every moment in our lives, each coming together with its own exquisite detail. It was like he said his own gata as he held that moment in time. You know, it's easy to think as we settle into practice that being aware, being in the moment, it's this sort of restriction you need to put on yourself. If I'm going to be, do the right thing, be a good person, I'll restrict myself to being present. And it's a fierce truth to actually start to accept we have nothing else. You know, no matter how strong our convictions, the coincidental nature of life will continue. But when we hold the moment in its fragile, fragile impermanence, it becomes a gift. How precious the wine-colored velvet uh, bowing mat. I can't remember who made it for us. But I feel grateful. And then in Buddhist terms, you know, we can say, oh, we're just talking about form and emptiness. You know. But um, we need to be very careful. What we're living goes way beyond any ideas, any nomenclature we use. You know. It's not just anything. 
it's way more than the idea we have about it. In its coincidental nature, it pulses with vitality and life. It is being alive. It's a gift. Balance, energy, outbreak. Listening to Bach, I saw you years from now, more years than I'll be allowed. Your daughter wobbles gone, your toddler wobbles gone, a sure and grown woman. Your barefoot on the floor keeps me in step. The power I first felt come through our cement floor long ago palps your soul and heal and earths you here for real. An oratorio would be just the thing for you. Energy, balance, outbreak. At play for their own sake. But for now, we foot it lightly, in time, and silently. Thank you. <clears throat>